you know, to get out there for a walk or for a run, you know, to push yourself just that little extra bit harder, you just make yourself feel better. You know, the healthier you get and feel, the better you feel and physically you feel. And then the more you do that, the more it rubs off on other people. And you know, that effect of that rubbing off on anyone, even if it's just one person, it just makes you feel so good that everything else is completely worth it. Today on Dirty Linen, we are sticking in Melbourne. We are talking to Chef Elijah Holland from Lume Restaurant in South Melbourne. I think I'm always going to, when I say Lume at the moment, I just always think about my meal that I had there before the fifth lockdown. It was, I don't know, it was just a really good meal and it made me fall in love with restaurants even more. And I think that was partly because I knew I was going to be locked away from them for a little while. Elijah, welcome to Dirty Linen. Awesome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, Yeah. What are you doing later on this afternoon? Because I bet it's not what every chef is doing. Um, yeah, no, so I mean, this afternoon, because um, uh, it's it's, cal- it's calming down a bit, so I'm actually going to be going out again, going for a bit of a dive, we're going to get some uh, wakami, going to get some sea urchins, and um, yeah, hopefully I might see something else while I'm out there, so I might be able to get something for dinner or something as well while I'm out there, which would be very handy, so I'm g- going out for a little dive. <laughs> That's great, and so you're Bayside in Melbourne, so you're heading to Brighton. What other kinds of things might you see in the water there in Brighton, which is well within your 5K, I'll has- hasten to add? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been going out uh, recently in and around, you know, just for, I'm um, just seeing, you know, so past, uh, I mean, look, past Elwood and Brighton around there, if you get out a little bit further, there's, um, there's some nice kind of grass, uh, you know, seagrass beds. And then you do find some nice reefy kind of like rocky areas, which is, you know, more ideal. So that's why I'm going towards, you know, you know, a little bit later in the afternoon, because I'll, I'll go out and stay out till it gets dark. And then that's when, you know, fish and things will start coming out. But, you know, in and around there, there'll be lots of things from, there'll be, you know, uh, hopefully some decent-sized snook. You might find some grass whiting, uh, definitely lots of flatheads, but, they, you know, they're, they're quite tricky to find them and spot them. Um, but, you know, look, there's, there's flounder and, you know, some lovely flatfish out there. Uh, sand crabs and octopus, they'll come out a lot more at nighttime. And then if it gets a little bit darker as well, then there'll be lots of snapper hiding under these beautiful like little ledges and little rock faces right under the bottom of the water. So, yeah, if you're lucky and you, you, you're careful, you can, you can you know, really get yourself a good meal, to be honest. And so are you spearing them? How are you getting them? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, just um, spear, like the fish will be just, you know, spearing them. Have a, I've got a, like a 1.1 meter spear gun, so I'll take that. And then, um, you know, if obviously for sea urchins and other things like that, we'll just be, you know, hand collecting them. But I have a net bag that's collected to a float line that's connected to the gun. So, you know, you can drop them, pick up urchins and other things that you can find. That's amazing. I mean, and you must have a pretty good wetsuit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got to, because I mean, look, I'm, I'm from Sydney, Northern Beaches, so I'm used to just jumping in the water in my shorts up there. And down <laughs> here, I mean, to be honest, it's colder inside the bay than it is actually on the ocean side. So I've got a five millimeter thick wetsuit and it's a, it's an open cell. So it's this type of wetsuit is really hard to put on. You have to use some like shampoo and other things to put it on. But once it's on, it's kind of like it sticks to your skin. And, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've been in the water for up to like about six hours or more, you know, down here in Victoria and like it's freezing. And honestly, if I didn't have the wetsuit, I would have, I mean, I wouldn't have lasted probably about 40 minutes. And so with, with that sort of wetsuit in the water for that length of time, do you actually stay warm or is it more just like vaguely bearable? No, 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 no. Honestly, like really warm. And by the time you get out of it, you actually, you really want to get out of the wetsuit because you're warm. Because what happens is just, it, you know, like it keeps the, um, sometimes you might get like a 
you know, this tiny bit of water and it sticks and stays around your body. But this kind of, it almost, it gives you this big, thick double layer of, um, you know, skin essentially. Um, and the wetsuit I wear, it has like a, like a chest piece that goes up as well. So wear, you know, the emotion needed around your chest and other things to keep your extremities warm. Um, you know, it's about almost up to like seven to 10 mils thick. So honestly, you're really warm with it. I do not feel the cold at all. And I mean, the only little things that you have a little bit of cold water on is just your lips because everything else is covered, you know, from gloves to, you know, your feet. So the only thing is out is your lips, but they go numb after the first 10 minutes after and you forget about them. So it's fine. You know, one of the pieces of advice that I keep seeing from, you know, psychologists and, you know, medical professionals, mental health professionals about lockdown and, you know, this cold, crazy period where we're just in the midst of so much uncertainty, they all say, you know, try to change your headspace, try to get away from it all for a little while um, every day. I feel like going out into the bay, just really with your head underwater, looking at what's going on in a completely different uh, different environment must really help with that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I think that the best thing to, to cope with this, but not only just this, I think in any situation or even just in regular day to day life is actually just really getting out there, whether it's, you know, the ocean or somewhere else. But, you know, for me, really getting out there into the into the water and ocean. I mean, it's a completely different world. You know, you, you get out there and then the hustle and bustle, everything just stops. And out there, you know, all you are, you, you know, you're just you're kind of, you're, you're really inconspicuous and yet, yet you are like, you're such a small thing in the water out there. Even though the bay is, a lot, you know, it's a lot more soft and calm. It can get, you know, a little bit hairy sometimes, but um, just to be out there in the water, you know, you just, you have this instant connection. Everything just calms and settles you down. And it's the most incredible feeling that just really wakes you up. And, you know, for me, sometimes to get up just and do it early in the mornings, it just, it just sets you off to have this incredible day because it really just puts so much good energy and these vibes into you. And it's just, yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's something that I can't go at least, you know, more than two to three or four days at the very most without being in the ocean, whether it's just a quick dip for a cold swim or if it's for a longer dive, then definitely with a wetsuit. But, um, yeah, honestly, it puts you into such an incredible space of mind. Mm, absolutely. And for people who don't have the, you know, a big body of water within easy access, I know that you're also into land-based foraging and hunting. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and you know, particularly thinking about the headspace that it allows you to get into? Absolutely. Well, look, I think just for me, any um, the, the, any connection where you can kind of really remove yourself from being, you know, in this place where you're surrounded by whether it's, you know, um, shops and roads and things like this, to, to escape out to the bush or even if it's not the, you know, the bush, because, of course, we can't always just get out there, but into beautiful spaces populated by nature. So whether that's man-made nature or not, it doesn't matter. So, you know, if you're somewhere sitting, on, you know, where you're close to a beautiful botanical gardens or something, you know, to get out there and go stroll and then kind of stop and, have a look at some of the leaves or crush something, smell something, just kind of really taking your senses and see what's around you. And to see honestly as well, how some of these things are actually made up and the infrastructure of how some of these plants and flowers and trees and things that are put together. It's really, really quite special. And not to mention as well, half the ones that you're probably looking at, at looking at are also, also edible as well. So, uh, you know, for me to be able to just escape and get out into nature, botanical gardens, parks, or just a really beautiful garden or the things that are put together, you know, I mean, it's just, it's such a really beautiful way of just, you know, kind of calming yourself and bringing this kind of creative energy inside yourself to be able to do more and just to have this really incredible kind of positive thoughts going through you. And with that, you're kind of unstoppable. You can kind of do anything because it gives you so much energy. It kind of just recharges you. So as much as you can, I always, you know, try to push, 
you know, anyone at all to really get out there and, you know, explore and, and see what's out there because there's so much and honestly it'll make you just feel so good. Mm. There's a tree that I've been using a lot during this period in the St Kilda Botanic Gardens and anyone who follows my Instagram will see me go and visit it from time to time. It's this beautiful big eucalypt and it's it sort of leans or bends over the, in the thickest part of its trunk and you can just see all these wrinkles that very, very sort of slowly over periods of years, decades must have formed. And I just find that tree so inspiring and calm and it just gives me a great sense of perspective. Uh, absolutely. And, I mean, I think the great thing as well about botanical gardens, you know, one thing I really love to go through them as well is, um, you know, a lot of the times there's a lot of different types of plants and trees that are always put into a botanical gardens that are not technically meant to be there or in that climate or in that area, but they're kind of more, you know, put together and orchestrated by, you know, people to be able to, to be growing there. And the cool thing is I actually live not too far from St Kilda Botanical Gardens and I'm I'm going there quite often. Uh, Kilda Botanical Gardens is really great because you've got everything in that in St Kilda uh, Botanical Gardens from, you know, cork oak trees. So, you know, the type of uh, trees that corks, are, you know, is made for, for bottles and other things. Um, then also from that, you've got beautiful carob trees in there. So, you know, one of the actual the desserts that I had on the uh, have on the menu at Lume is a beautiful carob, uh, you know, dessert. Well, um, and, and they're very rare, but they're the tree is also really incredible and beautiful. So there's a really beautiful tree just sitting there in the botanical gardens. Um, obviously, it doesn't get as me- much of the carapods because the climate is not perfect for it, but it's still growing there. And then you walk into the little greenhouse room in um, the St Kilda Botanical Gardens as well. And then you have a whole bunch of Australian native rainforest uh, trees as well, from Davidson plum to um, some different types of uh, rainforest fruits and uh, other berries as well. So, yeah, it's really cool to kind of get out there and explore and um, see. And honestly, uh, the botanical gardens are great because a lot of the time they do have little plaques up saying what the different trees and plants are. Not always, but yeah, so there's a lot of really incredible things to explore in all of them. I mean, Mel- the Melbourne Botanical Gardens is a really great one. The I don't know the exact area. I think it's the one that's near South Yarra, but I mean, there it's absolutely jam-packed with so many different types of plants and botanicals from all around the world, but just orchestrated to be able to fit into this little environment. So yeah, it's a really great way of escaping and kind of trying to put yourself somewhere else, even if it's only a, a botanical gardens. So, um, Elijah, tell us a bit about Lume for people who don't know the restaurant and your approach to menu creation. Can you just explain it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's something that I've really, uh, you know, stuck by for a long time. I really like to use uh, produce and things that are, you know, around me and that I'm surrounded by or that, you know, are in the same areas. And so, for me, I wanted to push it a little bit uh, further with this one. So, uh, for us at Lume, the menu is all based around ecosystems. So basically, we'll we'll go with the staff and we'll go and visit different areas and ecosystems, um, and we'll kind of see what is comprised of those ecosystems and see what's inside them, whether it be from the proteins to you know the um, you know the algaes or the botanicals and everything in them. And then we we'll try to create dishes that are all based around elements and ingredients from those specific ecosystems. Um, of course, I mean, we do forage a lot from them. Of course, we can't always forage everything from them because it's just not physically possible, whether it may be the proteins or some of the other plants because if they're protected or so on. But what we do is we comprise, um, you know, dishes for the whole menu, whether it's the drinks and also the food that are based around ecosystems and, the, and you know, the ingredients that can be found within those ecosystems. And the cool thing as well around that, a lot of the stuff that we use as well, because 
Um, you know, I've spent a long time researching this, but a lot of the things that we use, you can't actually buy anywhere else. So we, we're using some really interesting things. Some of them, you know, quite a lot of them are naturalized or um, invasive species. There are native species in there as well. Um, but um, yeah, so, so the menu is based around wild food sourced from, you know, um, these ecosystems that, you know, make up Victoria and greater Australia. Well, give us an example of a dish. I mean, I could pluck about three or maybe 13 out of my mind, <laughs> but you choose one. Like what's a dish that really speaks to the project of Lume? I mean, I think, look, one of my favourite ones that's actually been on the menu ever since and, you know, to be honest, it probably – We'll be around for a little bit longer before I'll have to change it because I do eventually get bored of things. But I think one of like the most simple ones for me, but um, it's kind of really elegant and it really shows up the ecosystem is I uh, want to call a muscle on its shell. Um, and it's basically, it was one of the first ideas I actually had of a dish to do on the menu at Lume because, you know, when first coming down here, I didn't actually realize that there'd be mussels would just be washing up so prolific, you know, everywhere. So, you know, every time I would go to the dog beach or somewhere else, there would just be washed up mussels. And then if you go for a dive, you know, around Brighton, if you go to, if you just right off Point Ormond from Elwood, if you go for a dive, there's just, you know, there's a beautiful mussel reefs all out through there and they're always just washing up. So I just wanted to create a simple little uh, snack that just really kind of, um, you know, puts back everything, you know, from exactly where it's come. So it's just a little simple, we make an edible mussel shell um, out of um, uh, a bit of uh, squid ink and, and, and potato and some other ink and a bit of kelp. And then what we do is we kind of bake it and mold it to shape on top of a mussel shell so it looks exactly the same. And then it just gets um, stuffed with a little steamed mussel and a kelp escabeche. So basically some beautiful kelp species that grow in and around uh, the bay. And we steam that. And then we just brush it with a little bit of that and we serve it with a little spicy beech mustard flour. So it's kind of really simple, only a couple of ingredients. And then to actually just finish seasoning it all along the rocks and everything where the mussels wash up, there's lots of beautiful succulents. So we use a little bit of samphire that's just thinly sliced to, to season it as well. So, but yeah, so basically the way I see it is if I can use um, all the, you know, if I can cover all my flavors from, you know, from vegetal to, you know, salty to, and everything else in between using ingredients that I can find around all in the same area. For, just for me, I think they just, they work more and they, they're going to taste good because they're all around each other. Yeah. One thing that I think is really interesting about what you do is the fact that you do use Indigenous and introduced species in the same dish. Because I feel like you, you could, there could be a sort of purest outlook on what you do you know like it could be it all has to be indigenous it, it, we can't use introduced species we're trying to tell the story of this place but I think what's really interesting is that you sort of layer the you layer the ingredients through time as well in the sense of you know a, a dish an ingredient doesn't have to have been here forever it could be something that's been introduced it could also be a problematic species let's say like like venison or, or sea urchin I mean can you talk about your approach and your thinking yeah, around ab that? yeah ab absolutely well because look we're, we're, uh, the way I see it is whether we like it or not they're all here and so we just can't ignore the problem or, or whatever it is so for me though the thing is they they're here they are working together but the thing is, there's, you know, there's ways and manners of trying to pick them up and to do things with them. Of course, we can just rip them out, throw them on the ground, trample on them, get rid of them. Some of these invasive and, you know, uh, naturalized species. But the thing is, that's not the way to do it. And I think 
incorporating them together creates more awareness of, over the whole kind of situation. And then not only to mention with that, whether they are introduced or, you know, non-natives or not, the thing is some of them, you know, have really, I mean, not just some of them, a lot of them have really incredible uh, ways of, of imparting flavor, story or theater, you know, in exactly what they do or what they do and don't do. So, um, you know, with them being in and around there, it just makes sense because, um, you know, using them as well. And if we can use some of these things and create a little bit of awareness about it to get people to be able to, you know, be more vocal and getting, helping to get rid of them or eliminate the problem, then eventually, hopefully, they're going to be able to help out the, the native species even more, you know. So the more people, for instance, that would be out diving or collecting or, you know, getting these sea urchins in the bay, then we'd be, we, you know, we'd slowly see a return of some of the beautiful native um, uh, algaes and species that are in and around there. You know, just one really uh, good example of this, uh, you know, to bring back is um, that it's it's kind of quite contradictive, but it's also something that uh, it's actually, I think, really important to actually bring up the problem of it is um, cardoons. So cardoons is this really kind of rare, high-priced vegetable. It's really kind of unique, a really bit of an old ancient vegetable used all over Europe. Um, but it's something that you can find, you know, the, the seeds on these, you know, heirloom websites for seeds and um you know, really kind of boutique uh, gardeners' websites and things. Um, but the thing is, all over Victoria and also South Australia as well, it's absolutely, you know, like carved with this, you know, invasive uh, cardoon. So really, it's it's uh, it's a big thistle, you know, it's in the uh, globe artichoke family. Um, but, you know, it's got a really great backstory in history because, you know, it's actually really great and to, to use and to be able to do something with. But, you know, it's such a big problem because it's just everywhere. And you can actually, you know, if you drive out towards the country past Bacchus Marsh, you can just see sometimes acres of people's fields and stuff and it's just been overrun and taken with it. So, you know, this is one that, you know, um, of course, it's good to just chop it and get rid of it. But if we can be getting it, you know, processing it and, you know, even sending some of this food to, you know, to homeless or to, to who, you know, to, there's just so many things that can be done with it. So I think it's always best to approach a more um, a thoughtful way of, you know, some of these species. But to be able to serve them together, I think it, I think it makes it really special as well. So I know that you did serve me cardoons, but I can't remember how. Can you just tell me how you might use it in a dish? Absolutely, absolutely. So cardoons, so once again, so in, they're in the globe artichoke family. It, it um, grows as a big thistle. Um, now, but the part that you use on this, you actually use the stalks and the stems. Um, and the stalks and the stems of it are very similar to in look to celery. Um, and they've got this really incredible, beautiful, the flavor is in between kind of globe artichoke, but with a celery kind of crisp and a crunch. But the trick thing is you have to get past the, you know, the armor of all those spiny thorns. And then you have, after that, you have a little degree of this layer of bitterness. So, but to do that, you just peel it and then you blanch it about two two or three times. And then after that, you've got this really kind of beautiful crisp vegetable and with flavors of globe artichoke and celery all in the mix. So that once again, could be used in all the applications that you might potentially use something uh, with celery or also with globe artichoke as well. Um, but it's just a really great vegetable to do like that. So you could be adding it into stir fries. You could be pickling it. You know, we've made uh, in the past, actually, last year on our takeaway menu, we actually used to do a um, we used to do a uh, cardoon 
and shallot tartatan that used to be on the menu, you know? So th- there's so many different things th- that can be done and can be used with it. So, and that's actually something that's going to be making a comeback in the next uh, couple of weeks, even just for takeaway, but then also for the, uh, the other menu as well. So it's always in some uh, manner or form, it's always a pickle in the restaurant as well. Cause we use it as a stock standard vegetable, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, ordering, for instance, celery, other things, we would use this in place of it as well. Elijah, Take me back to the beginning of your career or your interest in cooking because I just, you've obviously gone down a, quite an unusual path. I'd love to understand a little bit more how you got to be doing what you're doing. Absolutely. Well, look, I've, see, I've always been in and around food and I've always loved food. Um, it came from, you know, like a really, really young age to, you know, back in the day when I was really young. I mean, I, I think I started working as a baker when I was around nine, ten years old with my brother just for fun and I just wanted to do things with my brother. Um, but then I started doing it for a couple of years and I rem- remember I used to do it when I was in, um, I think, about uh, year, year seven and I remember back then I used to be even shorter than I was, you know, <laughs> and um, I would be having to stand on. I used to – one of my first jobs was um, with my big brother working at Baker's Delight and I had to stand on uh, bags of baker's flour to be able to reach the bench to put things into the mixes. And I actually have a funny photo of that I'll send you later. Um, but, um, yeah, so I went from there and um, I worked as a baker with my brother for quite a few years. And I just I, – I really loved food and I always hung around the kitchen, you know, making things with mom or grandma and so on. And um, so it was just kind of – it came natural, naturally for me. I wanted to be in and around food. So I walked across the road when I was about 13 years old because I was just overworking with my brother as a baker because he was a bit of a dick, I thought, sometimes. And um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's it. So I said I wanted to be a chef and first I got declined and they said I could do, you know, be the dish pig. So, you know, that was me first for the first uh, good couple of months. But I would watch the other chef on cold larder the whole time and study everything, see everything that he uh, do. And I remember I would ask the chef, you know, who is now, my, you know, my best mate, uh, boy, and I would ask him all the time and say, look, I want to come over and do it. I can do it. And then so they gave me the opportunity once when the uh, this Peruvian chef, he, he didn't come into work one day. And I remember I smashed it. And, um, yeah, in about two weeks, they actually replaced him and they, they gave me the job on cold larder and they offered me an apprenticeship. And then the rest was history. And then from there, I've kind of had a bit of a big, you know, like I've kind of, I've kind of worked, I've, what I've always wanted to, I've, you know, I've worked somewhere for as long enough. And as soon as I lose, you know, the challenges or I don't feel like I'm learning anything, then I'll be moving on to the next place. So, yeah. So, for, but from there, I went from that was specific grill when I was really young. And I went from there to working at uh, Baron Joey House for Darren Simpson back in the day. And then from there, I ended up, uh, Darren Simpson went and moved and opened a new restaurant in Sydney in the city. And then I helped him open that, La Scala. And then I went from there to Aria for about uh, nearly two years. And then after a really big stint, Aria was probably one of the toughest kitchen I ever worked in. That was one of the, you know, the where you get it done, you keep your head down and that's it or it's out the door. Uh, but that was really great. That really helped push my career and really helped me to kind of take control and, you know, get things really together. And then from there, in between doing some stints at, um, you know, some stages and stuff here and there at um, Key and a couple other places, uh, good, a good um, stint at um, uh, Fish Face for Steve Hodges at uh, Fish Face on Darlinghurst back in the day. That was, that was a long time ago. And then from there to Bistro Guillaume, then to um, – Oh, where was it next? I think it was a bistro gun and then there was Jonah's. And then, so that was probably the place I did the most amount of time in. So Jonah's at Whale Beach. So I did first a big stint for about two years there. 
And then um, I actually know that's why. So I did two years at two years at Jonas, and then I moved from there and went to Perth to open Bistro Yum. And then from there, I went back to Jonas as sous chef, and I got my first and and was uh, had my first sous chef job when I was I think I was about. I think I just turned 19 or 20 or something. So that was a really big uh, uh, thing for me. So that was really, really fun. I got, uh, I had control of about 15 to 16 staff in the kitchen there at Jonah's when we had one hat. And wow. um, that was a really incredible learning place because the head chef at the time um, gave me a lot of freedom. And I'd say probably, you know, the, the the menu was written like 50-50 between me and him, which was really incredible. And he gave me a lot of freedom and input to be able to help put many dishes on the menu and control it and take care of it with him as well. So, yeah, so that that was a really incredible place. And then uh, after that, when I was around 21, I had the opportunity. Um, I got uh, asked to uh, open a restaurant in the city as head chef by my friends Danny Russo and Royner. And then, yeah, so that was inc- that was the, the real big start of when I really started getting pushing my foraging and making charcuterie and everything um, while I was starting hunting. Um, so, yeah, so I had the powder keg back then. So, yeah, I was about 21. And, um, yeah, so I had the creative freedom to be able to kind of create and write and do the menus um, as long as everything kept within budgets. And so for me to be able to do some fun, interesting, different things, that's where, you know, I started diving for sea urchins and getting all these other, you know, different ingredients. So a lot of foraging because then it gave me the opportunity to be able to do these different, interesting, cool things on the menu but without blowing the budget. Um, so yeah, for me, so it was always about trying to find interesting, different wild things. And then when I started getting into hunting, I would have, you know, some wild boar or, you know, goats and these other things like this. And I, you know, I would just have too much to do with it. And so one day I just went down the road to this, um, this old, uh, Serbian butcher and I brought a whole wild boar and I said, can you teach me how to make salami? And, um, he laughed first at me, but then he said, yeah, sure. And he asked me where I got the pig and I said, well, how I got the pig, this is actually a very funny story, um, um, I was actually out hunting for a while over the course of a day and um, I was still just getting into my hunting and I wasn't really good and I tried to, you know, shoot a uh, pig with a bow and it, uh, it clipped and missed and then on the way home I was actually driving and the pig ran out in front of the road of me and hit and I hit it in the car and um, and then the thing had like fallen over on the side of the road and I quickly, uh, I was with one, an ex-girlfriend back at the time and I jumped out of the car and quickly ran after it and I managed to jump on it, jumped on its back and I managed to kind of finish it off. Uh, I won't go into too much more detail, but anyways, I threw it in the back of the car and that was uh, my first uh, wild boar that I ever got. Um, so, and then when I got it, I, I just, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do next with it. So yeah, so I just went into this and when I took it into the butcher as well, he wasn't particularly happy because it was still covered in all the fur and everything else. And I basically said to him, can you show me how to break this down and can you show me, uh, teach me how to make salami with it? And um yeah, so I mean, lucky this butcher was a guy that I'd already been buying some things off for the restaurant at the time. So he was, he thought it was funny, but he, he decided he'd show me. So, yeah, so he taught me, you know, all the fundamentals about charcuterie and char- charcuterie making, which was really interesting and a lot of fun. So from there, I started experimenting with making everything from, you know, to, uh, duck and goose and, and many, many more things. And then, yeah, and then from there, I suppose, um, so from there, I was, um, you know, like really pushing. That's when I started my wild food business, Nature's Pick with Boyan. And we used to supply probably about oh, 30 to like 40 of the top restaurants around Sydney. Everybody from the Bridge Room to Key to um, Gastro Park and everybody in between. And, um, yeah, and that's where um, Bo and Thomas from Noma uh, kind of headhunted me and found me. 
and um, asked me to come and rock up to this meeting one day uh, to show them what I could get foraging wild food-wise and so on. And um, so I first off, I didn't really believe I was so excited. So I spent about four or five days going all over the countryside of New South Wales and I collected probably about 350 different types of things, everything from seaweeds to fruits, nuts, berries, barks, and everything in between just so I could really show Rene and Bo and Thomas all the you know incredible things that I could find. And when I rocked up to this meeting, I had about four or five big eskies full of product. And I remember, I think it was at, um, I think it was at uh, Flying Fish or something in, 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 uh, in the city. And uh, I rocked up, I covered all these tables with all these ingredients and uh, nobody could believe what was on the table in front of them. And they just, they just basically said, where on earth did you get all this stuff? And I said, oh, you know, this, I was like, look, I got all this, but I can get more stuff. I can get this in season for six months, eight months. And um, yeah, so basically when uh, Rene and Bo and Thomas, they saw this bad, Rene basically said, look, this is when you need to resign at your job. You're starting to work for us and we need you to take care of. We need all of these things for Noma. So wow. that was a pretty incredible thing for me i couldn't believe it i was just actually happy to go there and just meet him and potentially get a book signed or something and then when he said <laughs> uh no you're working for us this is your state start date i was just kind of like i couldn't really believe it so yeah so that was a whirlwind that was an inc- really incredible time um you know doing the whole uh preparing everything for noma and you know the whole setup organizing everything for it and then from from then after that you know like you know Rene it was really cool cuz he really just treated me like a mate the whole time and he there was never a you know harsh word or anything at all the whole time and um yeah so he gave me a lot of good advice and he just basically said to go out and kind of you know really push after what I want to do and you know what makes me happy and what I really love and enjoy so yeah so directly after Noma Australia finished I um did my wild food business and I uh, did that um, these really incredible, fun, um, like wild food and foraging pop-ups kind of all over the world, which is really, really incredible. And I got to travel from everywhere to, from Malaysia to Singapore, New Zealand, um, uh, Canada, and uh, lots of other cool places. So, yeah. And so there was a lot of wild food foraging pop-ups in all of these places and basically just using all wild food and ingredients that I would source and find in and around the areas to create a, you know, uh, you know, let's say eight to 12 course menu for one night. And yeah, and that, so that was really amazing. That went on for, you know, a good bit of time, maybe about uh, eight months to a nearly a year. And then I had the opportunity to, um, I got introduced by Danny Russo and Roy. They introduced me to um, Erez, who's the owner of Lume. And he was the guy who asked me and he said, well, look, do you want to come to China and open some restaurants in China? And for me, you know, I love a good challenge. So, you know, the thought of going to somewhere I had no idea about, didn't know anything about it, was just kind of like it was really, really, really enticing. So, and and he basically said, "Look, you can do whatever you want, all the menu, the food you design and set up the kitchen, but just you just make it incredible." And and basically, there was you know no budgets with building, setting up the kitchen. And for me, and I think any chef, this is kind of like a dream come true. So I almost couldn't believe it. And then yeah, so but then so. That, that was a real whirlwind. China was probably the most – out of any kitchen or anywhere I've ever worked in my entire life, China was the probably – well, not probably. It was the most challenging, the hardest things I've ever, ever had to do. So, you know, walking into this kitchen in South China, um, 
that was first a, like a building site of rubble, you know, being there through the whole process of building it. But then having about 40 just kitchen staff who nobody spoke any English, that was, I mean, that was challenging, you know what I mean? So um, so for me, I had to really start learning Cantonese straight away just for me, to be able to help myself out because I had a translator that would follow me around absolutely everywhere. But still, you can only go so far with a translator. Things can't get done fast enough or in the heat of service when you need things done to translate to people, you know, what needs to be said and done right this instant. It just it can be very overwhelming. So, yeah, so that, anyways, but that was, to be honest, one of the most incredible experiences of my life, being able to go and work and forage and, and live around in China, you know, for four years. So, but so I only did, so I did about a year and a half um, at this restaurant called The Locksmith with, with Eris, who's the owner from uh, Lume. Um, so I did about a year at this place and then we uh, decided to part ways and I um, partnered up with this Canadian Chinese guy. And I moved to Beijing first, and then I remember actually it was funny walking into the kitchen first in Beijing, this big restaurant I helped open, and I walked into this place, and I was like, ah, no problems, I've got this covered. And I started speaking, you know, in Chinese, and then suddenly I realized that everybody just staring at me with these blank faces. I had no idea what I was saying. And then one of the other chefs who could understand what I was saying, he said, oh, you need to speak Mandarin. Nobody understands Cantonese. And then um, so boom, back to square one all of a sudden. And um, that's so, yeah, so that was another big whirlwind of uh, learning and, you know, like a whole new language again because it, it, it literally is. And, um, yeah, so that was incredible though. So, but with this big group, I was, um, I was running about 15 restaurants that were based around mainly Shanghai, then Beijing, uh, Shenzhen, Fuzhou, um, bordering on Hong Kong and then uh, a couple other areas. But, um, so, yeah, so I looked after them, but, Part of them, the main thing um, when, I, when I moved to Shanghai was one restaurant called Botanic. So, and that, that's Botanic with a K, and it's a restaurant that I built over there with my wife. Um, so, it was basically, it's actually quite very, very similar in ethos and and to what we're doing at Lume. So, basically, it was a restaurant, um, so tasting menu only, but it was from about 18 to 25 courses. Um, we only did 20 seats. And we're only open uh, three to four days at the most, at the very most. But um, so everything on the menu there, every single thing was only Chinese ingredients. So everything from the salt to the beef to everything, I didn't use anything from overseas because I really wanted to have an emphasis on using produce and everything that's around me. Um, but there I was using, you know, like, uh, you know, if I wanted to make my own chocolate, I would get um, – from, you know, Hainan Island, I would get uh, beautiful fresh cacao pods and I would make my own chocolate from scratch. So literally everything that was in the restaurant was all uh, crafted and made from Chinese ingredients, which was absolutely incredible, especially when, you know, I'd be getting goji berries that are the size of, a, you know, like of a raspberry. Um, well, I would order wild honey that would come from Yunnan and it would come in this bag with a bit of honeycomb on a stick and then you'd open the bag and you'd have to let the bees out to, you know, uh, to, to, out of the bag when it comes. And it was just, it was absolutely unreal. So, but everything there was, you know, the same things so are based around only, you know, sourced ingredients from China. Obviously um, I source things from very far away because China is so expansive, you know, it's hard to get things from only one place. Uh, but the incredible thing is basically anything and just about anything and everything you can find or get is, is in China. You know, they had so many incredible different ingredients. So, yeah, so I did that for about oh, about, about two years or so, so Botanica in, in China. Um, and then that was really incredible because we won first uh, Time Out Restaurant of the Year in the first six months opening there. And then I got invited two years in a row to World's Top 50 and Asia's Top 50 um, in, in Bilbao, 
uh, in Singapore and then also in Macau, which was a really incredible experience to go over there and meet a lot of uh, people. Um, yeah, so, but then after about two years, I just, you know, like started getting a little bit homesick and really just wanted to get back to Australia and, you know, diving and surfing and hunting and all these things. So, so me and my wife just decided to to move back to Australia and then, yeah, so moved back to Australia. So we moved back to Australia in about September 2019. And then I actually had no plans on coming to Melbourne or anything at all. But um, when when I was in Sydney, I ended up catching up with Erez, who's the owner of Lume. And he just said, look, you know, do you want to have a catch-up, have a chat? And basically he asked me if I'd like to come down and take over the restaurant. And, yeah, so, I look, I knew Lume had a great reputation and it was a really beautiful restaurant and space. And, um and yeah, so I thought, you know what, I'll give it a crack, and and here I am. <laughs> okay, wow. So I have about fifty million questions, and I reckon you could write about twenty books with all the things that you've crammed in. How old are you now? Me, uh, I'm uh, twenty eight. I'm twenty eight now. <laughs> okay, uh, that is a really amazing answer to a question. Um, I have so many things that I want to know more about, but one thing I'm going to ask you about China and wild food because we're, you know, in this global pandemic, which uh, most people think started because of the transfer of wild food into, you know, domestic food setting. What's your view on the way that wild foods are, are eaten, or I guess caught, trapped, hunted, foraged and eaten in China? Well, look, things, uh, things, uh, I'll put it this way, you know, like for instance, like the, the speaking about wild food or, you know, like forage food and things like this. So it, it's, it's not a thing in China because it's, it's, it's nothing new. It's what people have been doing for hundreds, sorry, not even hundreds. It's what people have been doing for thousands and thousands of things. Um, and you know, this is actually quite funny and a little bit crazy at the same time, but you know, I used to order, you know, lots of different wild foods in China. So, you know, different, whether it might be mushrooms or onions or, you know, uh, you know, other birds and things. But these things are actually probably about, I'd say about almost 60% cheaper than any of the actual farmed products, which is kind of quite crazy because it takes so much effort, more effort to find them and get them. So it's nothing new over there. Um, but the thing is, it's it's only things, most of it, the wild food is things that are used in small little rural towns and villages. So the whole like, kind of sense around it is kind of like, you know what I mean? It's not very big. And, and in China to, to use some of these things um, as a, you know, like a known chef or even in a good restaurant is not, is, is not really the in thing to do. You know, people get things imported, other things. So for me, but I didn't want that because I went and researched and I found some of these things, but the quality of some of these things was just absolutely uh, incredible. But I, I will say one thing, some of the places where, you know, things could um, – there could have been more problems with, you know, let's say uh, contracting things or illness and stuff. The thing is most of those things come from big, more kind of well-developed cities and things like that. So things coming from little small areas and rural towns and villages are so much more kind of clean and organized and put together and, and looked after than some of the big cities and, and things that I've been in and around some, cause I have done quite a bit of ex- expensive time traveling all over China to different rural towns and villages, um, foraging, um, in some really remote locations over there. And, um, so like the, the quality of the produce in these little towns and villages of, you know, the food that it literally comes from, you know, some, you, you know, just about a couple of kilometers away and it's just an incredible beautiful bamboo uh you know forest where you know bu- uh, the bamboo is like the size of uh you know it's so like almost 
almost as thick as a basketball, you know what I mean? And there's these incredible different types of bamboo fungus and bamboo shoots and other things in there. And then you go on the outskirts and you find wild um, beetle leaves and the other things. And then I've been out for a couple of times with some locals as well. And the different grubs and other animals and things that they find out there is just incredible. And how they handle it, it gets handled and used straight away. So I think if any problem, the more developed, bigger cities is where potentially there may be problems but for me i can only say honestly great and amazing things because i had such an incredible time and experience over there and i was lucky enough to be able to travel uh with some people who are really well connected with uh, many rural towns and villages so i ate some of the most incredible food i've ever had in my life and so, you know i go into you know this place it looks like we're going into somebody's backyard and then they'll come out and they'll select a you know a goose or a duck and all these other things and we'll literally eat things that are so fresh, you know, the things that are chosen and consumed and eaten all on the spot, you know. And most of the time over there, there's a lot of places there's not even, you know, fridges and pit. There's not the need or use for it because things are cooked and eaten fresh every single day. You know, it's not like over here in, you know, in Australia, there's other places where you go shopping for the, you know, the whole week or two weeks and we just throw everything in the fridge. Over there, things are, you know, basically shopped and consumed on the same day. Mm. So I think, yeah, I mean, I know that from my brief experience in China where, yeah, the markets there often isn't refrigeration, but things are so fresh um, that, yeah, there's definitely no problem with anything spoiling. But I think you're right, though. I mean, from my sort of reading on it, it is, it is those um, where expanding urbanisation encroaches on forests and other wild places, and that's where some of the issues can occur. Um but yeah, no, it's so interesting. It's such a such a vast country with so many. I guess everything is going on in China all the time. It's just such yeah. It's just so much. There's just so so much diversity and so many different experiences and different life, different types of lives that are going on. One hundred percent. I mean, one of the things that I think probably shocked me that you know the the largest producers of um, you know like for things like. Um, uh, you know, emus or emu eggs. I remember when I went to the markets in, you know, South China first and what did I see in the markets there? Boom, some beautiful emu eggs. And I was like, what on earth is going on here? These are hard to source in Australia sometimes. And, um, you know, but the diversity and amount of different things that are over there is just, you know, is, is just really incredible and insane, you know. I mean, I remember at any one time in my fridge when I when I used to, uh, to live over there, I would have, you know, I would have goose eggs, ostrich eggs, dove eggs, uh, partridge eggs, quail's eggs. Um, you know, chicken and duck eggs all in my fridge at one time. So I'd wake up in the morning. It depends on, you know, how hungry I am. If I've gone for an extra big workout, maybe I'll have a goose egg with something else or like, you know, so <laughs> it was such an incredible, t- oh, you, you know what I mean? It was, it, it was really amazing experience, really eye-opening experience. Yeah, amazing. I mean, it also, I guess, you know, at the other end of things, there's these, you know, not only intensive pork farms, but high-rise intensive pork farms. We've seen some stories about recently where it's just, you know, a skyscraper full of pigs. It's just, it's just, yeah, it, it's just everything because everything is going on at once. Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm not trying to say that there's, you know, but look, for for me, there's, you know, look, I suppose anywhere you go in the world, there is always going to be a sense of there's going to be things that are either going to be very uh, confronting or there's things that are confronting that nobody knows about because, you know, it's not spoken about or there's not enough vision or knowledge or people don't talk about it enough. So, but, mm. um, but yeah, 100%, you know, like, I mean, I've, there was, you know, some of the most you know, some of the hardest things to deal with and seen in my life, I've also been through and seen in China, you know, 
you know, once I, uh, when we were in South China, me and uh, my wife, who, who wasn't my wife at the time, but um, we, um, so we actually helped a big uh, truck of about, I'd say probably about, there was about probably 400 uh, uh, Chinese uh, people. And then also about probably about, let's say three, 400 uh, foreigners. And we stopped, there was on the highway, there was a huge big semi-trailer full of uh, uh, dogs mainly and also cats on the way to the Yulin Meat Festival. Um, and then we spent almost about 12 hours on some big property around there with everybody, uh, foreigners. And, and uh, there, was a, there was probably about, when we got there, almost probably about eight or 900 Chinese people. Everybody's there taking dogs out of these tiny little cages they're crammed into, putting them into bigger cages, feeding them. And, you know, so look, I've seen some very eye-opening things and, and stuff over there as well, you know. So, but, you know, like, I mean, look, it's all part of life ex- experience and there's, you know, these things that, you see and help to create who you are and, and, you know, it's just, it's a part of life and, you know, like, mm. of course, hopefully, you know, these are not things that I enjoy or, you know, wish to even speak about, you know, again, really, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things. Yeah, it's part of the tapestry, that's for sure. Well, Elijah, I feel like you don't really have time in your life for a pandemic, but give us a bit of a sense of how you and Lume are navigating this period. Um. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's quite tricky, I suppose. For me, I think it gets trickier each time, you know, things happen or lockdowns get extended or changed and put back, you know, because last year, every single lockdown, we would just open up and we did takeaways straight away, you know. But, you know, this time, you know, when, you know, this is, this year, we've only just started opening up and doing takeaway again because, um, you know, when I say it's like a week here or two weeks there or, you know, honestly, for us to also make the move and transition, to, uh, you know, from what we're doing, uh, you know, our tasting menus to go fully into takeaway, you know, it's quite a big move and transition. But not to mention, you know, like it's hard because things do drop on and off quite a lot. Uh, and to be able to get that revenue back and then also to have all our staff, it's it's really hard because, you know, for us, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, our, our biggest, uh, you know, spend is, is our labor cost, you know, in the restaurant because we have really, really good uh, food costs. Um, but, you know, for us, it's, you know, look, we've always just, the, the way I see it is, and especially with what we're doing at Lume, there's there's no physical way that we could possibly do the same kind of experience um, that we try to give inside the restaurant for people to have at home um, because we won't be able to show the story and, and talk about it and really push it as much. So for, for us, for takeaway, we just try to keep things really, really simple with a similar ethos. You know, we use um, things are based around sustainability and using wild food and locally sourced products. But it's, it's more simple. And, you know, so this time we've just only we've reopened again. But, you know, this time with a really, really small amount of staff because we just need to make sure it's actual it's actually viable for the business and that we don't lose more money than that we're making. Otherwise, the restaurant would just have to close completely. Um, so, yeah, so look, we're just trying to, you know, this time, we, you know, what we do is we still do really fun things. You know, we the, the only way for us to get through, we're doing it is we still, you know, so everything that we do, for instance, the last, last week, there was a lot of foraging to make it happen to be able to do all the dishes and things that we did. Um, and then we also work with some really great, you know, producers who supply us with this incredible, you know, wild venison and, and other things as well. But, you know, in between that as well, you know, it's all the, the, the process of try, trying to make it, it has to be really 
fun and, and push the you know ourselves and the staff to do interesting fun different things um you know so i mean like last time last year for instance we turned the whole restaurant team into builders and renovators and you know we we're ripping all the floorboards and everything out and we revealed this really beautiful kind of sandstone flagging that was in the back of the restaurant and then we went from there to finding some really big holes in the floor so then all of us became, you know, tilers. Well, we're not tilers, but, you know, like stonemasons. So we went to we had to go to Bunnings, get these big, huge slabs of, you know, stone, and then we had to grout them and, uh, you know, uh, concrete them in, put them in the back of the restaurant. And um, yeah, so I think it's just about any. I think the the way I said any um, situation that you get in, it's just trying to bring a positive out of it to, you know, do something that's you know, creative and it's resourceful and good for yourself and others. You know what I mean? I think that's the most important thing about it. Wow. So what would you say to people who are really struggling with this extended lockdown and just all the uncertainty? Well, look, it's, look, it's hard to say. I don't want to say and speak things like, you know, I have the answers to everything because I certainly don't. But for me, I think the best way to really, um, you know, to kind of the best way of getting your headspace around it and to feel good is to, to, to get out there, is to, to exercise, to, to be fit, be healthy. And do this not just so you can want to try to look good or do things, but go and get out there to, you know, be better for yourself. And then not only that, you know, the more you, you know, uh, go and um, do fitness or workout, exercise, get outside, you know, the more food you can eat. You know, the way I see it sometimes is, I mean, I'm a chef because I love to eat food. You know what I mean? So the more I keep myself in a better health, you know, that's going to be better for me in longevity in life. You know, the more food I can try and explore things that, you know, maybe I shouldn't eat all the time, you know. But also in saying that, you know, to get out there for a walk or for a run, you know, to push yourself just that little extra bit harder, you will thank yourself so much more at the end, you know what I mean? Because you just make yourself feel better. You know, the healthier you get and feel, the better you feel and physically you feel. And then the more you do that, the more it rubs off on other people. And, you know, that effect of that rubbing off on anyone, even if it's just one person, it just makes you feel so good that everything else is completely worth it. Elijah, I reckon that's a beautiful note to leave it on. Um, Thank you so much for really giving me and the audience an amazing blast of your energy and and enthusiasm. Uh, It's been really fantastic to have you on Dirty Linen. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.